Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Jamie Kastner, a documentary filmmaker whose credits include The Secret Disco Revolution, Kike Like Me, and Recessionize for Fun and Profit. His latest picture, The Skyjacker's Tale, digs into the story of Ishmael Labit, a Vietnam vet convicted of multiple murders who hijacked an American Airlines flight from New York to the U.S. Virgin Islands in 1974 and made a break for Cuba. Having premiered at TIFF last year, it opens in Toronto this Friday, January 20th, at the Hot Docs Theatre. Jamie went for The Producers, Mel Brooks' first and probably greatest feature film, an ingenious comedy about a low-rent Broadway producer named Max Bialystok and a delicate accountant named Leo Bloom who come up with a perfect fraud— sell hundreds of shares in a terrible play, and keep all the cash their investors will write off when it flops. But the perfect fraud requires a perfectly awful product, which is where Springtime for Hitler comes in. A genuinely cutting satire powered by the all-time great pairing of Zero Mistel and Gene Wilder as Bialystok and Bloom, and featuring some really terrific bad songs. The Producers was a left-field hit that minted Brooks as America's master of questionable taste, while the subsequent Oscar win for Best Original Screenplay demonstrated the Academy's excellent taste. If you haven't seen it, you are missing out. Although if you only know the producers as that terrible musical with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick, I'd argue you're missing out even more. This is someone else's movie. I mean, I've seen it a million times. I love it. I quote from it frequently. My nine-year-old child quotes from it frequently. You know, it's, it's like basically gospel between the older members of my family and I and and so many parts of that movie have entered our language as a family or as a kind of sensibility you know the people with whom I've shared sensibilities that I have the sense that that half of the producer's dialogue has entered the language at large but it could be smaller than that um so I went back but then I had this pang this moment of pang thinking is it really that good does it really stand up because that is that's really one of the interesting things about movies right is is you have this thing that you loved at a certain point that you saw in your life and does it stand up when you right. see it again and so i watched it yet again i mean i own a copy of it i wa- i watched it yet again before uh, um uh coming today and yes it does stand up i love that movie <laughs> i love every scene in that movie and I think it's it's a masterpiece. It really is. It's a classic. And I love analyzing things. I mean, coming from journalism and uh, as well. And uh, but it's one of those things. Now I know we're going to proceed to do this for the next hour happily. That's what we're for. Uh, but it, it's one of these things where one's initial feeling is, and maybe this is particularly true with comedy. I don't care. We're going to do it anyway. But you know analyzing it, it almost you almost don't want to analyze it. It's so it's so just perfect as it is but let's analyze it <laughs> yeah it's a fascinating thing right i mean that is the line like looking into comedy will is poking the dead frog like whatever right. happens the frog's already dead you've killed it just by <laughs> right right. right we can only diminish it you know but the producers <clears throat> yeah I, I went back and looked at it again as well and and it's 50 years since they shot it and it is it there was a period in the 90s where it felt dated and now it doesn't feel dated anymore it's really weird it came in and out of something some cultural relevance or something i don't know i think and i'm wondering if it was just maybe brooks himself going bigger and broader that made the producers suddenly look weird and out of place but now it's 
It's perfect. Maybe, yeah. It's it's because he is an incredible. I mean, look. I think of Mel Brooks, not to say that I love by any means everything he did, uh, uh, there, but I consider him my chief rabbi. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I had a project in development, which sadly did not, or at least has not yet come to fruition, which is a, a thing on Jewish humor. Mm-hmm. And my production company is actually named after a Mel Brooks line from the 2,000-year-old man. It, a botched reference, I must say, Cave 7 Productions. Oh. But uh, uh, it's from a yeah two thousand year old man book. So I mean, I really revere the guy, and and that said, I recognize that he is a sort of shameless rehasher of his material, and and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of fat in there. I, I, I the producers, the producers and parts of the two thousand year old man, I guess, are are my favorite things still that he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's the. Yeah, it's the it's first novel syndrome, right? It's yeah. the purest expression of what it is he's going to say. And I believe, he might not get another chance. Yeah, exactly. And it's the thing that he had cooking up for years. I mean, he had been a writer on the Sid Caesar show, yeah, show, show shows. shows. And uh, and I think there were actually like like lean periods before, relatively speaking, before after your show of shows and and before the producers happened. And he, I, I'm quite sure he had written this as a novel first. I mean, I think it's one of the few films that he wrote alone. I'm remembering this mainly from from a great uh, old uh, Kenneth Tynan New Yorker profile of him that was done in the '60s, I think, or yeah, '60s or early '70s, and. Um, and, but in any case, yes, exactly. First novel syndrome. He he had time to work the material, and I also I think it was it was one of the only things he wrote without a kind of writer's room mm-hmm. uh, uh, doing it. Although he had some surprising and interesting people in his writer writer's room subsequently, including Barry Levinson yeah, on who, uh, High Anxiety. Yeah, you know, who appears, of course, he's the guy who gets stabbed in the newspaper. It's right, just such, right, a, right. such a weird. I asked him about that once because I oh yeah I talked to him when he came through town for. Um, the Bay, the Eco Project, the Eco Horror Film. Okay, made a couple of years yeah, ago that nobody yeah. remembers. That no, I don't remember it either. And no one associates <laughs> with Barry Levinson either. It's, like, it's a found footage thriller about an ecological collapse huh. that Barry Levinson directed uh, like three years ago huh. and never released theatrically. Went straight to video. Isn't very good. Isn't very good. But unfortunately, we but... did. We talked briefly about it. I was like, how did, how did it even happen? And he said, Oh, Mel thought I was funny in the room and just gave him the role, and it's. <laughs> And you can point out that's the guy who made Diner and Tin Men and Sphere and he's just and wag the dog. And yeah, and yeah. what a bizarre career to to have. But I guess if you work with Brooks early enough, you have some kind of weird energy that he'll he'll latch on that to. That he'll respond to. Look yeah. At, look at Wilder, right? No one had seen anything like that performance. Right, right. Um yeah, still my favorite thing that, if that's not sacrilegious to say, uh, my favorite thing that Gene Wilder did oh, as yeah. well. Yeah, it's easy mine. Because he's he's so uh, uh, he he's contained in a way by who could act opposite Zero Mostel. I mean, who could act? Uh, I, it's a cla- it's everybody's best work in that yeah. thing. You know, it it, it uh, uh, where you know where where to begin. But yeah, I think that yeah. that. Uh, Wilder's performance is of necessity contained by all the 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 air that that Zero takes up in the room so brilliantly, yeah. so brilliantly, yeah. and apparently he and Brooks were were uh, uh, at complete loggerheads through the the filming of that. Which Wilder. is no, no, uh, oh, that Mastel. is Zero Mostel and, and Brooks. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, you can see that they're too too similar. Yeah, uh, it's 
it really is. It's an, it's an incredible. They're both incredible performances, both yeah. both uh, Wilder and Mustel. But Mustel is, I you know I I he's a bull who. He's constantly charging. Like he's charging into every line of dialogue, into every gesture. Even the the caricature on that DVD cover there yeah. is terrifying. He uh, is terrifying. He I, I've seen pictures of him having uh, from. Uh, who was that great New Yorker photographer? Anyway, uh, one of the old New Yorker photographers who shot, you know, the stars of the 60s. Anyway, I've seen pictures of him starring in uh, uh, a production of, of The Rhinoceros, mm-hmm. of, of UNESCO's The Rhinoceros. Now, obviously, I didn't see the production. It was before I was born, or, you know, at least going to theater. But uh, um, he embodies that. You know, you, you know, he is like a rhinoceros. He's, he's revolting and terrifying <laughs> And and yet, so nuanced and and it, I mean that 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 film really sets its own tone, creates its own language, its own code. You know, it defies all sorts of rules. I don't know if if you've I'm sure you you have at some point, but there there's that book, uh, terrible title, but actually a great book called. When the shooting stops, the cutting begins. Yeah, it's right over your shoulder. There you go. I, knew I was it. actually just kind of looking for it a minute ago, just thinking, oh, this is what the, this like. There's that so, anecdote, right? Part. By the by, the by Ralph editor Rosen. Ralph Rosenblum, who was who had an incredible career in his own right, right, uh-huh. going from like the dawn of documentary with with Flaherty, through what seven or eight Woody Allen movies, yeah. Mel Brooks, Three Sidney Lumets, etc., etc. I think he worked with Friedkin on the night they raided Minsky's too. That's uh, right. That's right. That's stuff. what the whole Just everything. opening uh, uh, chapter is about. And yeah. of course, it's like the editor's view of the world in which, you know, everybody's an asshole and the editor saves everything. He yeah. doesn't say he's a sounds like an incredible curmudgeon, but a brilliant one. Yeah, no doubt. It is remarkable just how many filmmakers have had tantrums in his room, although I suppose they all <laughs> must. But there's that story of Brooks just being furious that he doesn't have control. Well, he he is very... As much as he reveres Woody Allen, Rosenblum, he is uh, uh, dismissive of Brooks, and I, that is the one the one thing I I well disagreed with. I wasn't yeah. there, yeah. but I mean, I thought, ah, oh, whatever, Ralph. You know, uh, um, he he kind of characterizes Brooks. Uh, obviously, on this film, that was the only film they did together, uh, understandably given the account. But uh, uh, he characterizes Brooks as a kind of uh, cinematic primitive. Yeah. And now, while I, many things about that book, that book was very educational when I read it sort of early in my filmmaking life. But, but I, I remember him saying, trying to teach Brooks in his account again, that, that in cinema, you don't have to go A, B, C, D. You can go from A to D. That is kind of one of those fundamental and rather good lessons. Yeah, it's grammar, basically. Screen grammar. Yeah, exactly. And, and you, but whatever it was, whatever combination of forces, you know, fought, fought their way together through this thing, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. And I mean, I, I always thought, you know, before I started uh, uh, working in, in uh, film, you know, obviously I loved film. And, and, but I, People would come out of movies talking about the cinematography and say, oh, wasn't the cinematography beautiful in that movie? And I always felt, you know, sure, I appreciate pretty pictures, but if you're paying attention to the cinematography, there's something wrong with the movie. Right. You know? Yeah, if the narrative isn't carrying you. Yeah. It's, it's generally a danger signal that, you know, 
Ooh, pretty lens flares is never something you want to hear. Except maybe in Die Hard once, that one right. time. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I mean, so so that if uh, maybe Rosenblum has has a point, I've never been able to focus on the craft long enough to notice. You know, that's the highest compliment I can pay the producers right. on that point. You're just absolutely swept up in it. Yeah. And the, that's the thing that hit me this time through was the, the mania of it. Like even the yes. music is having an episode. It's just it's <laughs> extreme and heightened and fast right from the jump. I mean, yes. you start in the middle of this chaos and it never really stops being chaotic. It just builds into a sort of a musical shape that yes. has highs and lows within the musical. But everyone is pitched so high. And I can't... I mean, 1967 was not the most you know, high-paced year for cinema. There was some great stuff being made, but this must have been like coming into a theater and being hit with a freight train. Yeah, and, and I mean, when you, I'm, I don't have the years. Uh, uh, you probably have them more on the top of your head. But when you think about that that golden age of independent cinema, yeah. so, you know, the kind of easy writers, Raging Bulls time would have been... Right around just, there. Yeah. Just right around there. Starting, I mean, this is a totally different... In, in a way, I, I was struck watching it again by its, its outrageousness... It is its outrageousness and at the same time its innocence because it comes from an era that was still innocent enough that you could actually still be outrageous. You know, I don't sure, know yeah. how... Now, I mean, some of that stuff is touching on such such uh, uh, cultural, historical, everything taboos, every taboo imaginable. Yeah, you, you kind know. of have to explain to people that this was maybe 22 years after the end of the war. Yeah. There were there was a generation that was missing. There were people that just still I mean Germany hadn't even begun to process its trauma yet. There there was all this stuff going on and I'm trying there is no modern analog, right? Like people are making movies about 9/11. It doesn't yeah. there is no taboo anymore because everything moves so quickly. No, and of course you're you're touching on something key I think which is that part of the uh his Part of the horror of the Holocaust was the how long it seemed to take people to acknowledge the Holocaust. Sure, yeah. I mean, everywhere that that seemed to have been the case, uh, and and certainly, indeed, as you're saying in the movies, I believe the pawnbroker is is I think is generally thought of as as one of the first American movies anyway that addresses it, yeah, and yeah, that so. would have been actually sixty four. It wasn't. Yeah. Not that long before this. Mm-hmm. So look at the leap indeed. <laughs> and this is for an American audience. And, and uh, you know, obviously there, there are... Well, when you see the, the, the other thing, I mean, that movie is the essence of Jewish humor yeah. to me. You know, Mel Brooks is the essence of Jewish humor. All that, that, that gags, that irrelevance, that I- irreverence, I should say. Either or. Either or. <laughs> the characters themselves are irrelevant before they do this which is sort of the point right 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 but it is it's a it's the weirdest underdog story i can imagine but it's it's a it's a perfectly crafted little story and i think that that's part of what uh, of of why it it stands up i mean it's uh, in it the the there's a gag a second in that thing that indeed range from like you know very literate you know when you I was just sort of starting to on rewatching it well okay there's a Dostoevsky reference there's an Ibsen reference there's a Kafka reference you know of course the character Bloom is a Joyce reference you know he's he's packeted in there it's it's certainly highbrow by by today's standards and and at the same time it's it's all this you know 
uh, uh, physical humor. Uh, uh, now I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> I like this movie. Did I mention? That? Yeah, it came up. Uh, the, <laughs> you were talking about the irreverence and the the uh, the, the embrace I, of the taboo. Uh, last week's episode was the original Heartbreak Kid, which oh, I love Maddie that Watts brought yeah, in, yeah, yeah. and that led to a kind of a, an interesting conversation about the Jewish perspective in that film, which is really weird and self-loathing and and creepy and predatory almost by the time the film is over. Well, that's what Judaism has meant to me. I don't know what... That's <laughs> half the fun of being a Jew right there. It's the predation. <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, in the age of Trump, it's about to be less fun. The yeah, um, God. <laughs> yeah, just that way to kill any good time. Just mention <laughs> that word. It's uh, it's fascinating though the the, the way anti semitism is sort of rolled back right up again. Yes, because uh, it was just waiting. It was always there. It's been yeah. waiting for its shot, and it doesn't really factor into the Heartbreak Kid except for a couple of little lines. But it's it's oh, but it, it, it's, it's the whole thing of it the whole story hinges on it oh, yeah, in yeah, a way yeah. right it's, i mean it's never made explicit you could see the movie and not know like you if you were a gentile yeah you could miss it you could just not get it you could just think right. it's about a pushy guy right uh which it is. which who who dumps his jewish wife in, For, in pursuit of this perfection uh, yeah fantasy yeah yeah but with the producers the, <laughs> i have always dreamed of playing a great game like this with a girl like you yeah. sorry anyway yeah it's not it's, my week oh yeah. no people if you missed it last week <laughs> yeah listen watch the heartbreak oh Kid. it's a great movie it really is something but five years earlier you have the producers where the very jewishness of the characters is not only essential to the plot but also to the humiliation like the, the idea that even inadvertently two jewish producers would make a musical about the nazis and that it would be a success is this vulgar triumph that that brooks concocts for himself and then being jewish himself goes out and realizes by making the movie which becomes <laughs> a massive hit it's it's just it's, a, it's an incredible leap intellectually that he could even think of it and then pull it off and that it now stands as a classic. It's kind of amazing because he was the guy who was spitting out silly jokes that were supposed to be, you know, ephemeral. They weren't supposed to last. His stuff, and mm-hmm. a lot of his stuff hasn't really, other than Spaceballs, which children fell in love with on cable after it was released, uh, but it's not a good movie by any stretch no. of the imagination. He hasn't. A lot of his work has sort of just kind of fallen to the side. But the early stuff, the producers, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, they're amazingly timely and immediate and satirical, but they're also enduring in a way that I don't know that even he intended. I mean, maybe Young Frankenstein because that is like that's a pitch perfect satire of 1930s filmmaking, so right, it can't date. Right. But the other two, <clears throat> the producers in Blazing Saddles, are so utterly contemporary that it's terrifying yeah and now 50 years later they hold up really really well yeah they do and and no you're you're making an interesting point yet another interesting point about uh uh i mean one thing that that i i gave some thought to as i was developing my (laughs) my unmade jewish humor project uh but was how long it took on one hand, there is this cliche of of all of Hollywood being Jewish, and and there there is no doubt a disproportionate number of of uh, creators who sure. who are in that in that sphere, but Jewishness uh, um, itself was not directly addressed until very late. I mean, yeah. really, it's true. It's implicitly there in in the producers, and it's there in every pore of the producers. 
um, but yeah, it's never stated directly. No, it's never stated directly, other than you. But at the same time, I mean, it's part part of what's fun about it is also you know being a producer, producing my own films myself. Of course, you you think of it often. You know, there are many. It's an endless satire of showbiz uh, uh, apart from anything else <laughs> the idea that you're gonna put on um armbands and go and and solicit a uh, uh the script from from a nazi playwright in order to to get what <laughs> to get what you need yeah. you know it's I, I haven't quite done that yet but you know the night is young i'm sure people do find themselves in that position more often than not i mean just we i was just talking about uh, Under the Sun, the, the the film about the North Korean propaganda industry, where clearly if you go in saying, oh, I just want to reveal your machinations, it's never going to happen. But no. You just go along to, to get what you need. Of course. In and, a documentary, sure, that's that's pretty well the definition. Yeah. Put on the armband. What am I saying? I haven't done it. I've done it repeatedly. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. But then you do, in in the producers, as far as the visual, uh, the visual joke, of course, of... of Gene Wilder looking like he's going to vomit, but standing still is amazing. Like his misery, the way that he starts out sad and just gets more miserable, even <laughs> yes. as he gets more manic. It's, it's a, I, I mean, we could talk about the script, we could talk about the structure, but if you don't have Mustel and Wilder, uh, yeah. and, and especially Wilder, because he, ha- I, I'm in awe of that performance because he has to be just as insane but in a completely different, like backwards in heels, really. That's because he right. Because can't, he can't do what Mistel is doing, yeah. or it would be unbearable. And he, he would, tends to be, I mean, generally speaking, a kind of over-the-top, rather manic performer himself mm-hmm. in, in other roles. But you're exactly right. He has to go in the other direction, and, and uh, it comes in, in quiet, uh, uh, <laughs> yes. quiet moments. But I mean... When those the the intersection of the two of them, I mean, like the the those those setup scenes, there all there is not a bad scene in that movie. It's all so good, and it just it, it's as you say, it starts at such a pitch, and then it just grows and grows and grows. It's incredible because how much more outrageous you think can you get than a, a disgusting sleazy old producer in an old robe with that ridiculous comb over. Yeah. Uh, uh, coming on to little old ladies in his office in order to, I mean it's so you can hardly describe it without without bathing you know yeah. uh, or or you know wanting to lawyer up in case someone charges you with something merely for recounting the uh, the plot the synopsis yeah and then but anyway I'm just thinking of of that that moment apropos the performances uh, um, where I'm hysterical and I'm wet yeah, and I'm in pain blanket scene which is <laughs> which is so I it is I think that is my favorite thing that that Wilder has ever done because it's just there's nothing else like it in yeah the, like in the universe I don't think <laughs> the fact that he is because he's an accountant he is measuring out what is wrong with him as he has a psychotic episode <laughs> right. it's so perfect oh, right. character and he found a way to do it yeah no I think it See, only that struck me nice. that benefited from analysis that yeah. didn't kill it, that it only just it only struck me this time. yes it's like oh my good. god he's making a list like he's actually <laughs> telling you what's wrong with him uh and the the fact that Mustel, it's the only time in the film that he shows fear because he doesn't know what to do. Right. Uh, it's right. such an amazing moment where you realize, okay, whatever else happens, and this is only the first act. Yeah. That these guys are matched. They're perfect. This is oh. how a buddy dynamic works. That neither of them can fully predict what the other will do, but they need each other to live. Right. And yeah, they each enable the other's worst best instincts, I guess, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. You know, as they have said for 50 years the producers 
is a genius plot, and I'm sure it's been used in the real world. Certainly, <laughs> that's how Uwe Boll finances his films, right? right. They're, they're guaranteed to lose money to take advantage of tax loopholes in Germany, which, as soon as the loopholes closed, he stopped working because right. he knew he couldn't do it another way. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing that Mel Brooks has given us a blueprint for how to work the system. Yeah, exactly. And every time you see a plague flop or a movie come out with such a terrible idea behind it I, I wonder I mean I kind of wonder was this as I, I also want to believe as a film critic that no one sets out to make a bad movie because that would make my life horrible if I didn't believe that <laughs> right but then I just saw Underworld 5 last week and well <laughs> so much for that thing. I don't know that anybody cared like Kate Beckinsale right. must have had her heart broken she was she just worked with Stillman on Love and Friendship right. and now she's doing right. this again right but yeah it'll there'll be another one they make they make money they break even they you know they, right. they generate funds right to make more bad movies and and somebody yeah while well, somebody keeps getting rich somebody keeps getting rich off them one way or another it is a strange business it is a very strange business i've i've been uh, uh joined in in my little production company in the last year by uh uh my wife who i somehow lured away from corporate law uh, with promise of, you know, the riches and uh, glamour and glory of documentary filmmaking. Sure. Make your own hours, uh, yeah. all of them. <laughs> and it's interesting to kind of see someone else learning the business afresh and realize, you know, like watching a movie with someone uh, who's seeing it for the first time, you're, you're uh, seeing all the bizarreness of it, which much of which is captured in that. In addition to, I mean, in addition to the accounting aspect of it, I mean, all of those little touches and flourishes, it's full of things that that you catch on repeated, repeated viewing, you know, little, little touches like, um, you know, it opens with a scene with him and the little old lady and they're, and they're playing dirty games, yeah. a, a dirty role playing games. And he's the Contessa and he's the Contessa and the chauffeur and in the game, his name is Rodolfo. And then, you know, half an hour later when they actually make all the money and they have a chauffeur. Thank you, Rodolfo. Yeah. You know, would you? I'm sure I didn't notice the first nine times I, I saw it. Yeah. The stuff like when when uh, uh, Dick. I mean, also every little part. Not only the stars, but every person in that movie, no matter how long they're in, on screen for, is is uh, feels like a brilliant little character turn, a, a perfect casting. You know the lady who's the the uh, uh, concierge in the concierge right. in uh, uh, the Nazi playwrights uh, uh, building in Kenneth Mars, uh, Franz Liebkind. I mean yes. the name Franz Liebkind uh, um, building. You know she she just they make a meal out of it in what feels like a, I don't know a vaudevillian style, which ought not to work in yeah. film because in fact it's too stagey, it's too slow. But these are such a bunch of talented pros, and the and the thing they're riding on is so perfectly crafted that they can do it. Yeah. Boyds, filthy, dirty, disgusting boyds. Boyds used to be able to sit out on the stoop like a poison. No more. No, sir. Boyds. Thank you, madam. I'm not a madam. I'm the concierge. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is. I you know I was trying to figure out if there was an analog to any of it. Maybe laughing with the door bits comes close right, right. but those weren't funny <laughs> right, they didn't right. contribute to a larger thing they were just single little bits that maybe would get a laugh and maybe wouldn't or you know oh Artie Johnson's talking in a funny voice he can do so much more than that but this is what network wants Brooks is working without a net like he's just making the movie he wants to make and 
uh, yeah, he wants Dick Sean to do that thing. He wants Kenneth Morris to do that thing and then do more of it and do it ten times bigger. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, imagine the pitch meeting when you're trying to sell this. Yeah. And then this happens and this, this happens. I mean, I suppose the you see the roots of it in in... His own work, I was going to say you see the roots of it in his work after, but even I realize that cannot be. <laughs> but uh, uh, he is a, a famous recycler. And it's certainly in the sensibilities of your, your show of shows. Uh, wh- you know, you, you, I don't know if you've ever seen, there were interviews, the Writers Guild, this has already got to be 20 plus years ago now. I remember it was on PBS. There was like the Caesars Writers mm-hmm. panel. They, they brought uh, uh, most of them together. Including Brooks, Reiner, Mel Tolkien, Larry Gelbart, uh, and I want to say I've seen clips of it at least in something. About it, it was wonderful. It was great, and I remember the original airing of it, having given much thought to the cost of using clips in in things. In, right. in the original airing, it had all the clips as well. Whereas when you bought the VHS, it did not. But anyway, they're they're all talking, and this is, oh Neil and Danny Simon. I mean, they are all talking these great titans of comedy writing. Uh, and in that room, you got the sense that Mel Brooks was still king of the clowns, you know. Yeah. And they're they're still quoting back Mel Tolkien, who had been the father of Michael Tolkien, right, of the player, and uh, um, had uh, uh, and and who also dated my great aunt in Montreal. I'd like to point out. <laughs> okay. There are a few personal. Oh, anyway, there is one other small, tiny peripheral family reference in the producer. I was going to say, Mel Tolkien in that in that thing remembers Brooks. <laughs> coming into work carrying a bagel and, a, and the Wall Street Journal and saying he was disguised as a rich Jew. <laughs> and he sings back to him some song he, he, he spontaneously made up in the office, which was something like, Soak some rags and throw them in the shul, the anti-Semitic polka. <laughs> so this is always willing to go there. Brooks was, was there. I mean, you see bits of like that kind of double talk I think it was called on the Sid Caesar show you know right. the fake the fake the French fake yeah. fra- he in in the little the bit part that Brooks plays when he's playing the Prussian the Prussian uh, uh, auditioning for Hitler in in the producers uh, he's doing it in a kind of you know it's half double talk there even some of the there's a, a famous bit in that Sid Caesar show uh, where he plays I think it's called the general, and it, it's a guy who who has his his uh, valet spit shining every every uh, every button on his coat and fixing him up, and 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 then the punchline of the of the skit is that the kind of camera pulls back and it turns out he's a doorman, and uh, so I you know I noticed again the little touches like when when Franz Liebkind arrives the 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 writer arrives at the premiere of the producers of excuse me of Springtime for Hitler within the producers. Um, he's there. There's a kind of doorman uh, opening the car, and he fixes him up. He does a kind of Nazi twist on it, and he, right. he has the guy getting out of the car, fixing up the coat, making him stand up, spit shining his things. But you know, there are little yeah. touches in that in that that world that they all came from, or I mean, antecedents in that in that Caesar world. Sure, and he would. I mean, who can blame the guy for harvesting his best bits <laughs> and making sure he had his name on them this time? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I think that's right. It also came out of the the uh, the two thousand year old man. I mean, those that kind of twist that twist on on hi, on history. And I feel as though I'd have to go back and listen to all twelve CDs to find it, <laughs> yeah, like I did. Which you is have how I said as well. I, I found out uh, uh, how I, uh, too late that I had misnamed my company or, or mistaken <laughs> the reference I was going for. But anyway, 
Um, I'm, I, I feel as though some of that, that other stuff about Hitler being a great, uh, you know, the 2000 year old yes. man, Hitler being a great basketball. He says in this one, he Hitler, he was a great dancer. Yes. He was a, you know, people don't know that. Oh my God. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, apparently that's on. how he pitched it to someone in an interview somewhere. Uh, at least the IMDb claims this, that there's a, there's an interview with him floating around somewhere where he said, oh, his next movie is going to be called Springtime for Hitler, which was the original title. Yes. And uh, it's going to have all the, it's, and it's the standard line from the film. It's a joyful, a, a gleeful romp through Baptist Garden with Adolf and Eva. But, and he said, well, you know, Hitler was a tremendous dancer. You, people don't know that. He was just burping up lines. <laughs> but I don't know, and I'd love to find out if he had the, that line written or if he came right. up with it and then decided, oh, that's good. I should keep that. Right, Because right. that clearly, he spit out more stuff than he kept. Right, um, right, right. And it's just so fascinating to watch this thing evolve. I mean, even the title, um, I'm sure you know this, the Peter Sellers story, uh, supposedly, again, uh, this no. is the internet telling me things instead of books that I can actually point to. <laughs> uh, supposedly, the F- MG, or not MGM, United Artists wasn't going to release the film at all. They saw it and were horrified when it was called Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> right. And it made its way, a print of it made its way to Peter Sellers, who was just amusing himself during down days on I Love You, Alice B. Toklas watched the film, loved it, and insisted it be released. And the only concession was ultimately, because uh, Josephine Levine was so horrified by the result, the only concession was that it couldn't have Hitler's title named anywhere, anywhere on the marquee. <laughs> so they called it The Producers, which is actually better. I mean, <clears throat> as much as I love the hideous absurdity of Springtime for Hitler, it only works if you immediately follow with, it's a musical, it's a, a Broadway show, a joyful romp with Adolf and Eva. If right. you just put that up on the... On the uh, <laughs> Marquis, people think it's a sorrow in the pity. Like, they'll think it's a documentary. <laughs> right. Right. I hadn't thought yeah. about that. Yes, I was aware that, that he, they were forced, he was forced to change the name of the producers. I didn't know about that Peter Peter Sellers thing. That's wild. Well, yeah. there's a kindred spirit. Yeah. Uh, um, I hope it's true. I mean, yeah, I, I like no it. no idea, but it sounds like it should be true. Yeah, really. And, and uh, who's... You can see why I think his time was being better spent watching the producers, having you know yeah. seen Alice B. Toklas at some point. Not mm-hmm. Well, we're Six, not talking about the it. The 60s weren't for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Also, speaking of which, yet another thing that he lampoons, that, that Brooks lampoons in the producers, among the many, many things, is is the 60s. Yeah. You know, he, he finds time with that, that LSD. All of those set pieces are just so perfectly conceived, and they all just fit into place perfectly. The... the the little dialogue, you know, when 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 um, the director, right, the worst director, uh, uh, Roger Debris, discovers after they're, they're already outrageous. I mean, that, again, is one of the... You cannot discuss this, even in passing, without talking about another perfect little bit, but the his, Hitler casting session, yes. right? Such a funny uh, uh, parody of, of showbiz and the types, and you get it, you know, in, in very short strokes... The tenor, yes. you know, and the other guy who doesn't even start singing is some actor with a kind of hilariously like bulldog like like drunk face, ruddy, sweaty. <laughs> he just moves his maw around a little bit, and they call next. You just get the types in in shorthand so well. But anyway, yeah. So so when they get to Dick Sean, LSD, L- Lorenzo Sandubois as the the Hitler who almost got away, right? Uh, uh, and he these stupid gags, like the, the Warhol reference, he's wearing a, a can of Campbell's soup as a necklace. And the, the like, 
60s backing chick band who are playing instruments that, if you look at it too closely, do not reflect the soundtrack yeah. at all. I don't know that they there is have no, strings. There is no, yeah, they don't, they don't have strings. You hear no saxophone That's in Love right. Power. And I think did, Love Power may have been the one song he didn't write, I think, like someone else wrote it that. But, been, but yeah, anyway, whatever. Contracted out within the Yeah, week. he wasn't, he, uh, uh, but... You know, these stupid, hilarious little touches. Of, oh, I was just going to say, like, even the little bits of dialogue when, when Rod, uh, Roger Debris is getting him to audition. What do you do? You know, what do you uh, what do you do best? Or, or what, what have you what have you been in or what have you done? Oh, about six months, man. Well, what do you do best? Oh, I can't tell you, man. That's what they put me inside for. Yeah. I mean, these stupid little bits that are hilarious and they work. And there's like they're in a funny way. So much of Brooks's uh, lesser works feel over the top and fat and rehashed and gratuitous. Mm-hmm. And I, it's hard to understand exactly why all this wonderfully gratuitous material, wonderfully and equally gratuitous material looked at in isolation works so perfectly in this yeah. film. Well, I wonder if it isn't that with his first movies, even Young Frankenstein, which is following a Frankenstein storyline that has the spine there... But with the producers and with with Blazing Saddles especially, it feels like he's not parodying a specific thing. Right. And the producers isn't a parody. It's a comedy. It just happens to have a musical parody in the middle of it. Right. But Which is, yeah, parenthetically. Which is magnificent. Hilarious. And, you know, what the, the, uh, who is that director you'll know? No, Busby Berkeley, the the, (laughs) the high shots, the dancing girls. I mean, and so outrageous. Still so outrageous. Yep. I mean, it is still outrageous. The Nazis, the, the, the swastika is a symbol. Like, let's give it some credit as a brand. <laughs> it has not lo- lost an ounce of its of its offense value. I mean, sure. right? It's as, it's as, as we're as ever, yeah. unfortunately talking about these, you know, the, the, the perennial re-rising again of anti-Semitism and assholes spray painting swastikas around. There is something of the uh, that is in a kind of Lenny Bruceian maybe sense uh, uh, empowering, right? About about taking that symbol and turning it into the centerpiece of a high shot of yeah. a bunch of chorus girls in the middle of. Of course, there's something empowering about it. That's the whole point, right? You know, it, it's it's. Uh, but there's I, a genius required to know you can pull it off to make to even think of it in the first place and then play it out. Is yeah, it's fantastic, and to yes. know that the audience will get it or at least trust that they will. The, and that's what I mean, absolutely. That's what I'm thinking about some of the other stuff too, that's like balls. the '60s dialogue, the references, <clears throat> having someone come out and wearing a can of Campbell's soup. It would be dumb if that's all it was, but something yeah. about Sean's performance lets you know that he's a poser. Like yes. that's it. That he's he's faking it. Yeah, and yeah. the '60s thing is just a, it's his hook. If it was like now, he'd be a hipster with artisanal barbecue or something. Like yeah, actually, be, the same outfit could work. It Maybe could, beer. right? <laughs> just a different, yeah, different yeah. facial hair. Yeah, it would have to be a more local soup. But, and a Van Dyke. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the but the film is smart enough to allow for the space that everyone is playing an angle, and every like even the idiots are trying to do something. They're trying to put something over on somebody yes, else. Yes. Franz Liebkind is trying to repackage the Holocaust and, and Nazis and, and Hitler himself as you know misunderstood. Uh, had some good ideas, dressed really well, danced. I mean, and look at it. It's actually unwittingly, perhaps you know, a parody of Holocaust denial. In a you weird know, way, when you when you express is. it like that, that's yeah. what it makes me think of. Well, certainly in 1967, Holocaust denial was still 
pretty much a thing for a lot of people. And, and there was no, like, Shoah was still almost 20 years away. There was no confrontation. You could be, I mean, you could be operating in a void. You could be shattered down. You could have one book that no one else had read because there was no other. People don't understand how alone everybody was right up until about 1998. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, this movie would have been... I can't imagine what again. I keep saying I can't imagine because it's. It, I can't imagine what my how my family would have responded, um, or how. I mean, I read the reviews at the time, and some people were thrilled, and some people were horrified, and other people had literally could not understand how to approach it. <laughs> and it's fascinating. It's yeah. just this amazing art piece that now there is no analog. I don't know no. what the present day version of this is. No, no, there isn't. It is totally sui generis, absolutely, and and. Uh, Apparently, one thing that's always given me some comfort is that it bombed in Germany. Yes. Well, it couldn't be released there for a while, right? right like it had to right. be. It had to be brought in as because because the swastikas themselves were taboo. They couldn't I mean, screen it because it was contraband. How exponentially ironic, really! It's uh, yeah. yeah. It had to be brought in as a festival of right. Jewish art or something. That's how oh, it is made that it in? right? Is that right? I've forgotten that detail. If I knew it, oh. Well, but I, I gather it didn't do very well, even even. Uh, uh, but that that no, is. I can't uh, imagine anyone would take e- well. To even it. now, even now, I mean, there there were as I discovered researching this other project a few years ago. I mean, there there have been attempts. I mean, listen, I I think that that whatever um, official or genuine uh, uh, sorrow or remorse or reparations are paid good you know yeah, sure and and i was going to say that it that that it, if it remains if it remains a, a touchy subject i mean i have tried I, I i've made a joke that i i try to fit hitler into every film that i do i i mean the jokes of course that i don't try but he seems to find his way in there i right. did a film on disco and there was indeed a, a a kind of revisionist historian who had a theory that that the roots of disco were in the uh, the swing kids listening to jazz on records oh, okay. under under the Nazis. It's it's a theory like another. Anyway, sure. so he I don't uh, so, know that I agree. But okay. So to, yeah, well, you're not alone. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, so to illustrate that it was kind of a. a, a a comic this doc was a comic approach to these revisionist historical approaches to disco in which one simply wanted to make the most of illustrating the theories and let the audience decide uh and so i put i put hitler in you know i got some stock footage of of hitler because you know it seems like such a, a an insane uh, uh contrasting bunch of ideas disco yeah. and hitler i would have been, you know feels like an outtake from the producers in fact <clears throat> But when when I sold uh, uh, that film to Germany, they they made a point of saying they wanted that, but it had to be uh, cut for length anyway. Yeah. But they yeah. Would no, you mind focusing? Yeah, on Hitler. take Hitler out, please. That's interesting. And uh, yeah, still touchy over there, and appropriately so. I think <laughs> yeah yeah. And also talking about moving forward into in time now, what what everything becomes kitsch, everything becomes respectable. And the producers became a Broadway smash. Like the producers became a massive, mm-hmm. proper musical, right? Built around Springtime for Hitler, which I never did get to see on stage. Me but neither. I yeah, did see the movie. Terrible. And it was abominable. Oh, it's terrible. That other movie. It's it's a shame. I mean, I was happy for Mel Brooks. 
sure. I think Mel Brooks' success. And he must realize, of course he realizes by this point that this is, you know, uh, those those early things were, were his gold. He then tried, I gather, unsuccessfully to do this the same with Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein right? yeah. He came and went. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. It, it, but when you see, well, when you see the old movie, though, it is both a lot infinitely better infinitely more fun more cool more edgy more more uncomfortable making i mean it's alive oh the word i would use yeah it actually is a thing that is happening in front of you even though it's footage projected on a screen it's it happens in front of you because it's electric it's got something to it but it's interesting what you're what you're you know the point of it becoming a, a, a huge hit in a, to another generation because at the same time looking at this at, at looking at the old movie now through kind of contemporary eyes you think oh my god that would never get past that would never I mean this he what group doesn't he offend right. you know there's the little old lady uh, uh, would be marching in the street obviously it's it's full of oh, it's full of gay stereotypes Uno. talk about that Uno, exactly it's, it's sexist misogyny although you know. again it packages it so smartly in that it is clearly Max Bialystok's misogyny it's not the films it kind of is ultimately because she's dressed that way for the 60s and everything <laughs> else but the but the idea that he can have a speech about how I, I bought myself a toy I just bought a toy and it's a woman a very good little sequence of uh, he listening to Ralph Rosenblum's uh, advice of cutting from A to D by the mm, way right he's, to have he's a surprise yeah. he's lying he's he's lying cuddling his dollar bills Boys, boys, I worked so hard for you. I want to get myself a toy. Cut to the pan up her long Swedish legs. Yes, I mean, you could never do that today. And in Um, fact, in order to make it work on stage, they had to completely sell it out and give Una agency, which is fine, but it still doesn't work. No. It fights the material. No, Una... Una is hilarious and perfect as she is in that old movie. It's, It's... It's... it's that joke. She mm-hmm. is that joke. The good dog pute, and then and then also the the her reacting to the suggestion, where uh, through the 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 language barrier when he we go to he says get car you know, uh, <laughs> she says we go we go to motel no no not we me and Bloom you and Bloom go to motel and that, I mean all of that it's yeah. so juvenile and and ridiculous and of course exponentially insensitive but there's a kind of like i mean, i was intrigued by how even in the watered down versions any version of that uh uh and and the you know the the gay jokes and all the rest of it roger debris and and carmen Ghia, mm-hmm. <laughs> how that flew at all i don't know in the in this day and age maybe maybe mel brooks people realize mel brooks has gone so far with everything in his day that there's a kind of equal opportunity offense in the name of over-the-top comedy but somehow i mean it doesn't seem like he's in a different class from say like a don rickles or something like that which does feel kind of dirty to me i mean they're dirty and hacky yeah yeah it's it's predictably yeah i mean i think exponentially insensitive is a great way to put it it's uh his well, his defense at the time was that it rises below vulgarity, which is a magnificent <laughs> yeah. argument to make Perfect. in the moment. Uh, he simply went for it. And the, I think there is a glee, there is a joy that somehow translates in the, of the taboo breaking and the offense and the sheer volume of it. That right. it's like a 
torrent cascading <laughs> over you in a theater. I, I censors are left speechless. Yeah. You know, what could you object to? <clears throat> what can't you object to? And at that point, it's all there. Like you can't just, you know, Blazing Saddles now, I think, is the one thing you couldn't remake because of the N-word. It's just yeah. even with Richard Pryor writing it and Cleveland Little starring Ooh, in it, hoo, hoo. it hurts now to watch that film and, and to yeah. see actors that I have seen in many, many other things just throwing that word around. I get it. It was a gig. It, and they, there is a larger point to it, but you couldn't do it now. You simply couldn't do it. And you shouldn't do it because it's incredibly insensitive now because we're past that. Well, hopefully. I mean, I think that he was still... No, I mean, this is not about Blazing Saddles. I don't like Blazing Saddles nearly as much as the producers, but it does have its its greatness. Uh, um, yeah. And I watched that again recently. Uh, uh, you know, ne- needless to say, I've I've brainwashed my child into having. I believe that's the only point of having children. You, yeah, you brainwash them into having sharing all your tastes. And, that's called living your best life. That's oh, my, good, yeah. good. Um, <clears throat> that made it sound more honorable. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so my kid loves Mel Brooks now. He's he's more of a young Frankenstein man at nine, but I figure he'll he'll uh, grow out of that. No, no, I love a young Frankenstein too. But I can see that one having a lot of kid appeal, though. Yeah, it's got a monster. It's got soup. Exactly. And he repeats. Well, the way also when you're a kid, you just repeat the things the grown-ups are saying and they find funny and you laugh because they laugh or you and it's funny how humor works and gets yeah. passed down, right? I I remember well laughing at the things my family was laughing at. I didn't understand what the hell it was, but it was just, it didn't mean it didn't feel genuinely funny to me. So in any case, I'm passing on this abuse. (laughs) And uh, um, we watched Blazing Saddles recently. And yes, there was, I had to clearly explain to him, this word was never, the N word was never acceptable in any context. And and actually, I don't don't believe the um, Lenny Bruce thing I, I like the idea of it, but I don't believe it's true that by reclaiming these words, it robs them of their power, right. which was part of my own statement at the time in calling a film kike like me, right. because for some reason... But yeah. for a Jewish filmmaker to reclaim kike, that's one thing. For a non-black person to try to reclaim the N-word, that's... Well, that, that is the point about it being thing, right? impossible to reclaim it and rob it of its power, because no matter how much you, you say it amongst yourselves, when some redneck says it, uh, in a disparaging way, it it has all the power it ever had. Exactly. I think in 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 the case of any of these uh, words. So anyway, I told the kid that the N word was not funny. It was not acceptable. Having having made that clear to to him, I I could appreciate the way in which Brooks was satirizing rednecks. Sure, you know that was the point of it. Yes, they're they're saying it, but look at those characters. They're they're murderous animals. Yeah, you know, the line, they're the, a posse. The salt of the earth. You know, morons. It's it's yeah. It's very clear who's using the word and why. Right, right. But it's still you couldn't. It's do horrible that. to you hear. You it. simply it's, couldn't. It's do horrible it. to hear that. No, I I agree with you. I agree with you yeah. about that. But with the producers, it's I think it's because Bialystok and Bloom are never fully identified, like by the movie as Jewish. It's assumed right. that everyone knows. Right. But they're the ones with the money, so everyone pretends to respect them, including the Germans, to get their thing done. And by creating this sort of chain of need and want and making everyone feed everyone else, it's sort of okay that it never comes up explicitly, because it can't. Right. And right, then in the right, end, right. they're prisoners and the status is the same as everyone else's anyway, right, and right. they're still putting on a thing. And they're still they're in still showbiz. Trying to be in charge. So that's how you know they're Jewish. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? But that's the punchline is that they the, the plan is so solid that they'll do it again because they're <laughs> they finally own this this 
caricature, the stereotype of conniving, swindling Jews. And it's really fascinating to see the yeah. movie kind of come out that way and going, yeah, well, they're good at it. That's why. <laughs> it's, and it's Brooks' own triumph, right? Like, I pulled this off. I made this movie. It works. Yeah. And I think without the confidence that he provides, none of it would have connected because you'd have one actor who didn't know what to do. Right. Uh, and just that lack of certainty would kill the scene. Right. I mean, you've, you know, right. we've all seen movies where the director clearly didn't work with the actors enough right. to convey what he wanted. Right. And that's the thing that amazes me about the producers is that one man made this. Yeah. There is no question, no doubt in my mind that he shaped and engineered everything. Right. And it didn't kill him. <laughs> he made more stuff. Yeah, clear. If this was the only thing he'd ever done, it would still be a masterpiece. Exactly. Yeah, he could have retired. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's something. It is. It is amazing. I was watching it again, and just apropos all those perfect little, perfectly drawn little bit parts. Uh, again, like scene after scene, and and uh, was it Bill Bill Hickey who he, he had playing the drunk in the bar? The perfect casting, right. perfect face. And I mean, he was one of the the, the better known uh, uh, players. Actually, I don't know, or at least now I know I know who Bill Hickey was, but but uh, I don't know the names of most of those other people. Right. But boy, were they good! Like the concierge woman, or the. Um, uh, the just those faces of the of the Hitlers of the Hitlers in the audition. It just it reminded me actually. He even gives the hot dog man a little a, a little bit. You know, I'm not your good man. I happen to own this establishment. That's right. Um, it reminds me in a way of something that I always appreciated actually about Kubrick movies, uh, and particularly the early ones like uh, uh, The Killing. Mm-hmm. And he kind of peoples those films with a really gnarly little sideshow of 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 bit parts like the hotel clerks. Or, or the the tellers at the at the uh, racetrack. But but you're right. There's a sense of I mean maybe it's just a New York thing where you're just you you expect more activity and right. there needs to be a life to everything. Yeah. But yeah, the producers has the same function where when they're running around Central Park in that fountain, there are people looking at them. Right. And wondering what the hell that is. Right. Right. And it's probably just because they weren't extras and they blundered into the shot and <laughs> it works. But even if they were, it makes sense. Everything that happens in the film builds that world that you're in where. Everyone has another thing to do, and they're always in the middle of something, and the right. hustle never stops. Right, right, right. It's, yeah, it's... Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, it's this kind of cycle of hustle. Cycles within cycles. Yeah. It is, it is alive. And I, I think, uh, again, watching it again, it confirms my, my sense, and, and I'm, I can't argue... Well, I, we've argued it shot for shot, but I mean... Uh, uh, it's great filmmaking. I don't care what Ralph Rosenblum thought, <laughs> or maybe he maybe he was part of bringing it out. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, it 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 in its own way, it's. It, but it's funny the way that that comic filmmakers. That's what I was thinking of it when the Kubrick thought occurred. It was like comic filmmakers don't seem to get the same cred or respect in the sort of cinema. Sure. You know, in the annals of cinema, like Billy Wilder and nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Just because the apartment is sad. And the apartment is not, at least in terms of what stands up, I wouldn't say the apartment, I know that's looked at as a masterpiece, but it's, I think that's one that that was kind of a masterpiece in its day because it was, it was heralded for its modernity, you know, that it was talking about relationships in a new way. Well, we're way beyond that in talking about relationships. So that one actually feels dated. Whereas some like it hot, I could watch over and over and over again. Or Sunset Boulevard. Or sun- or yeah. Sabrina even. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I really like the apartment, but I do feel it is kind of a museum piece now. Yeah. Yeah. Fortune cookie. I mean, there are a number of, oh, oh boy, oh, I want to come back and talk it up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll 
make it. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, but that does bring us to the natural endpoint in this conversation, which is the the final question, which is you know, is there anything of the producers that's worked its way besides Hitler into your work or your creative DNA? Have you found a way to use it, or do you even try to use it? Oh, I forgot before I answer this sure. very good question. I have a much more trivial point to make, uh, uh, which is is a small. Oh, is it anyway? Oh, is it the family? The other it's the family. Thing? Thing. I kind of want to know about the, that. The so, family yeah, thing is that I had I had a, an act. I, I had an actor. I had an uncle, my late uncle uh, uh, Peter, who was sort of a movie star for a minute in uh, in the '60s. He he was. Uh, he starred in a, a kind of classic Canadian film called Nobody Wave Goodbye, right, and right. then was in Francis Coppola's, one of his first films, uh, I think his first non-B movie called uh, You're a Big Boy Now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he, and uh, uh, but in any case, he, uh, uh, there is a poster of a play, I, I, so I appreciate the, the, the way the spirit of Mel Brooks' spirit and what he wanted to do with that movie infused every last detail from the performances to the costume to the music as you say to even the decor and I can personally appreciate this because in Max Bialystok's original office in Act One Mm -hmm. he has posters which I assume are all Broadway flops on the wall because one of them an uncle of mine starred in and it closed in four days and it was called the playroom and it was uh he him and karen black who uh, became his girlfriend for a while were in this place so there is a playroom poster so those posters are real yeah i well or let's say i haven't researched the rest but i know the playroom is is uh, was real well, certainly if one is they must all exactly it's and, it's cheap. and that was part of the gag then yeah. that they were flops too that he's got the producer's uh, office lined with flop posters talk about world building so I, I feel that, uh, um, I mean, as I say, just it's funny that we're, we're talking about this film. <clears throat> as I say, it's, it's the answer that comes naturally to my lips when people ask me, what's your favorite movie? It's the producers. But it is funny in a way that we're talking about this in light of or on the occasion of a film of mine being released, which is so dramatically different, you know, a, a kind of documentary th- thriller about a, a fugitive and airplane hijacker. Sure. Um, I would say that, that I, I feel a great kinship with that, with, with Brooks's, with Brooks's mania, uh, with his irreverence and, and humor and absolute lack, lack of taboos. And I mean, look, I, as I say, I named, I named my production company after a Brooks, a Brooks, uh, uh, bit. I, uh... Did a film called Kike Like Me, which was a, a highly irreverent um, investigation of, of anti-Semitism and identity. And, and the title and the rest of it, I think, is informed by some of that spirit, not necessarily consciously, but since you ask, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think that I, I, I think that some of that energy will, will bring w- that feeling that nothing is taboo, that you can find the humor and the contrast and the hypocrisy and, and all sorts of stuff in, in any world. I mean, be it, be it disco, be it the recession, be it, you know, and, and that I suppose I do like to make as a documentary maker primarily, although I'm, I'm working on a fiction now, uh, uh, the, um, you know, I'm not one of, I try not to be a boring, earnest documentary maker. I try to make films that are entertaining first and foremost. And if people think uh, as a result of that, then 
I hope people think, but it would be kind of happen organically. It's not right. something that I'm sitting them down and spoon feed and, and force feeding them something that, that I consider really important. You know, I, yeah. and, and I think that that here we've, we've had a fairly, you know, a, a conversation that's touched on a lot of fairly serious historical philosophical things. And, and Brooks has led us to this yeah, yeah. with one of the most ridiculous movies ever made. Yeah. It, uh, it takes a certain kind of genius, I think, to make a movie that is as enduring and as weirdly relevant. It's prismatic. Every time you turn it, you see something new. Yeah. And, yeah. uh. Sometimes it's a swastika, sometimes it's a cardboard belt. Like, it's anything it wants to be, which I think is so fantastic. I mean, th- those... How often do I find myself thinking and laughing and quoting those lines? You know, one morning Gregor Samsa woke... They're looking for the worst script ever written. Yeah. One morning Gregor Samsa woke to find he turned into a giant cockroach. Nah, too good. Yeah. <laughs> or, or like, wait, wait, what did I do right? Where did I go yeah, right? Where did I go right? Where did I go right is something... And that's our Hitler, which is probably my favorite line. <laughs> Just because of the glee <laughs> and the perversity and the fact that now, of course, on rewatch, you know they're going to be punished for it. Like right. it's, it's a film about hubris, only it really, really isn't <laughs> because every bad deed is rewarded. That's every right. Mistake pays the, off. It's tricky to know what the lesson of <laughs> the producers is. Yeah, I think the lesson of the producers is be Mel Brooks. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll all get there someday. Here's hoping. My thanks to Jamie Kastner whose new documentary, The Skyjacker's Tale, opens at the Hot Docs Theatre in Toronto this Friday, January 20th. It's a really interesting story, and one that has some surprising parallels with present-day America. You should definitely check it out. You can find Jamie on Twitter at Jamie M. Kastner, all one word, M as in Michael, and keep tabs on his movie at Skyjacker's Tale, all one word, no M in it. And you can find the producers in an excellent Blu-ray combo edition from Shout Factory. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Thanks for listening.